at what point is a company meant to chase a million dollars or $2 million by commencing litigation because maybe it'll get sued as it tries to do this, which may cost $5 million, which may corrupt its DNO policy for the next 20 years. A company has an obligation under standard fiduciary duties to exercise its business judgment, which includes taking into account financial repercussions of cost and benefit. By putting the company in a position where you're basically saying dollar for dollar, we'll give you a dollar off if you chase this, it's trying to corrupt the business judgment decision-making that boards are charged with every day. It also opens the floodgates for private plaintiffs to sue boards for not doing this. Welcome to the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti-corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, host Tom Fox and members of the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white-collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm back for perhaps my favorite All Things Investigation episode annually. That is because we get to talk about the 2023 FCPA alert from Hughes, Hubbard, and Reed. I'm absolutely thrilled to have Laura Perkins and Kevin Abakoff with me. Thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me. Thanks for having us. We look forward to the discussion. We're My pleasure, Tom. We're going to start with the introduction because, number one, both of you have signed the introduction page. But before we get to your signatures, we have a rock and roll quote. And I think it's absolutely perfect, particularly given what happened to this individual. Go fast enough to get there, but slow enough to see from Jimmy Buffett. So, Kevin... I'm going to start with you. Why Jimmy Buffett? Why this quote? And how does this really inform this year's alert? Yeah. So, Tom, you'll recall that with the exception of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who has rock star status of her own, we tend to have each of these, now the 15th edition of these alerts, start with a quote from a popular artist or band who's been lost in the last year. And so this year, there's no more thoughtful poet (laughs) lost to us this year in the rock and roll world than Jimmy Buffett. While it's always a competition, he certainly stood head and shoulders above in terms of a selection. And the particular quote, it's poignant in the world of anti-corruption enforcement, now in the world of sanctions enforcement, obviously there's a need for speed quote. We'll talk about the M&A release that's come out and the the rapid speed at which the DOJ expects you to do everything. And I think Buffett's quote for us is a reminder that you have to go fast, but you better be looking at what you're doing as you go, because getting it fast, but getting it wrong is going to have severe consequences. That's kind of my initial take on it, but Laura might have her own spin. No, no, I think that's absolutely right. And as a parrot head, there was really almost no competition for this year's choice of who we were going to be quoting. But no, I agree with Kevin. And I think it's important for everyone to keep that in mind. 
and to do so in a upbeat <laughs> sort of way as Jimmy would want. So as we move to the highlights from this year's alert, a couple of things struck me, and I'm going to start with the announcements and announcements by the Department of Justice, because one of the things it's finally dawned on me is both continuity and evolution from the Department of Justice. And I saw that early in the year with the announcement of the 2023 corporate enforcement policy and the 2023 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. I saw those start literally in 2021 with speeches beginning with Lisa Monaco going forward. And then we had a memorialization of an M&A policy that I thought had its roots literally back to 2008 coming forward. So I wanted to maybe start with Laura because of your former position with the department and your current position now where you really get to observe your former colleagues. Is my characterization fair for both continuity and evolution from the department? I've always thought they clearly signaled what they expect from us in private practice. I think that is right, Tom. The only thing I would say is I think it's actually an evolution that started much before 2021. The corporate enforcement policy is an evolution from the original FCPA pilot program. Just as the department gains experience with these policies and they see some change in the way companies operate and the way their investigations are proceeding, they're able to fine-tune the policies. And I think that that's a lot of what we're seeing is some fine-tuning to ideas and concepts that were really started years ago. And that would include the changes to the compliance guidance. Again, that guidance was originally issued prior to 2021 and has, like you said, evolved ever since. The department does that intentionally. They are paying attention to what types of changes and what types of effects their actions are having on the marketplace. Then they change the policies as needed to tailor the type of behavior they want to see from companies. That's a lot of what we're seeing with some of these evolutions to the policies, as you pointed out. The I'm glad you brought up the pilot program because I saw sort of either three announcements of three initiatives or formalization of three initiatives, but I was most intrigued with the one coming forward from the pilot program, Laura, on the discounts available to companies who meet the requirements under the new corporate enforcement policy. And I hate to go into the weeds, but guess what? I'm a geek. So, And there was the discount of up to 75%, but off the low end of the sentencing range. And I've tried and tried to tell people how important that is because the low end of the sentencing range is based on a formula under the U.S. sentencing guidelines. And it's very different than the middle range. And it's very different than the top range. And you can literally save hundreds of millions of dollars. But that's probably too geeky for this podcast. But I want to get to clawbacks and the M&A policy. So what did you guys see in the formalization of those two? And is there room for continued evolution? I'd start with the M&A policy. It's interesting, Tom, you know, you mentioned Halliburton 2008. We're proud that 2008 was also our origin year for our FCPA alert. 15 years since Halliburton, 15 years of our alerts. I think we've also probably subject to the same kind of characterization of evolution. This started out as an FCPA alert, became an anti-corruption alert to reflect the broadening of the scope of world activity. And I wouldn't discount the possibility that 
the subject matter ultimately starts to touch on sanctions and things like that, because as you've heard from some of our brethren, there's an FCPA mindset afoot in the sanction space. And so if you're foreshadowing where this may be headed in its next evolution, we may be headed there, slightly off topic. But as far as M&A, one of the things that I'll start my focus on, I have a few, but I'll at least start with a compliment. Tom, you point out that the DOJ and Ms. Monaco in particular are apt to build on a theme. And one of her themes has been empowering compliance officers. You and I have discussed at length how I feel that works or doesn't work in connection with compliance officer certifications as part of settlements. Be that as it may, thematically, the idea of protecting compliance officers, empowering them is one that Ms. Monaco has really put forward. And I took with interest the beginning of her speech when she talked about the M&A policy in announcing it. She had a very, very good quote. I actually have it with me. She says, I talk a lot about empowering general counsel and compliance officers to make the case in the boardroom and the C-suite for investments in compliance and to make the case that investing in strong compliance is good for business. As compliance officers, you're on the front line of protecting your company and its shareholders. And in today's world, more frequently, that means protecting national security. And in this instance, and in the M&A policy that she's announced through the balance of her speech, I really think that this actually does become fit for purpose, that insisting these timeframes are tight and that they trigger with the closing of the deal really puts a premium on business people giving compliance officers a seat at the table in the M&A process. I think this, maybe unlike my CCO certification context, really does empower compliance officers. And that's kind of my opening thought on this. Yeah, I see the M&A policy really as, again, to go back to your term, Tom, a bit of an evolution and a natural sort of side to the corporate enforcement policy. It does lay out some more stringent time periods for sort of the M&A context, but it goes back to the principles that underlie the corporate enforcement policy, which is to encourage both compliance, but also investigating, reporting, and remediating. Those all sort of remain in the M&A policy, just with some tweaks, obviously, for the particular context. I think it is, again, just an evolution and a slight different angle to the corporate enforcement policy. Just taking off on that a little, one of the interesting things for me is that the M&A policy requires a self-report, and at least as the speech is written, of criminal conduct, which is supposed to self-report. And question here, is that an admission? <laughs> okay, so you've self-reported criminal conduct. And in a world in 2008, when the DOJ more than than now was really the only player on the stage, there's a much greater logic and maybe business case to make that kind of self-report, even on pain of it being an admission. But in a world in which individual prosecutions are at a premium and more importantly, a world in which it's not just the US, but the UK, the French, lots of other players on the world scene at various times, there's no real focus on the impact of those other possible prosecutions on a DOJ self-report. And by the way, you know, when you self-report, when you've waived privilege, you've waived it for everybody. 
the implications of this are just massive. And I don't think they're particularly well considered yet, at least in the DOJ's literature. But I do think it's going to be something that boards of multinational companies, which this almost always is the case, are going to have to wrestle with. Yes, we self-report to the DOJ, but what if that triggers a multi-year investigation in pick your favorite jurisdiction? And what does that do to the value of the acquired asset? Have we self-reported ourselves out of business? I think there are myriad complex questions and live economic questions about whether at the end of the day, this really is going to make sense for anybody. Just to add on to that, I don't know that the M&A policy adds that much to what a company could have gotten under the corporate enforcement policy had it followed sort of all of the same steps. What I do think it does is something Kevin touched on earlier, which is bring this a bit more to the attention of companies and to boards as they're going through this process. And having a particular policy with time frame set out like this will help empower compliance officers and will encourage companies to do more due diligence, do it earlier, as there's now sort of a specific policy on it. But if you look at the terms of it and you look at what a company can get out of it versus what they could have gotten under the corporate enforcement policy, it's not a significant difference if you're taking sort of all the same actions and steps. And it does, like Kevin said, leave you open to the possibility of enforcement actions in other countries as well. Let's turn now to the clawbacks. And we had the memorialization of something that once again had been brought up earlier but frankly, was discussed as far back at least as the 2012 FCPA resource. But we had some formalization of that. What were your thoughts around the clawback and take back formalization? This is a very debated one. <laughs> I participated in the ACI conference last week on this particular panel, which was an hour-long debate about the merits of this policy. There are very different perspectives on it. Obviously, it's a voluntary policy. So companies don't to try to take part in the clawback aspect of the policy. Companies that are going through a resolution will have to follow the portion of the policy that is going to require companies to consider and implement some sort of tie between compliance incentives or repercussions and bonuses, or not necessarily bonuses, but some sort of compensation. So that piece not as voluntary, but that's been an issue that DOJ has been talking about for years now, like you mentioned, and it's been in the compliance guidance that there should be considerations of tying compliance incentives to compensation in some way. Again, it's an evolution, but they've taken it a step farther by allowing companies who are able to claw money back from employees to then get a benefit on the ultimate fine. And we saw that in the Albemarle resolution last year or this year that we talk about in the alert. But if you look at the amount of the reduction versus the amount of the fine, I think the reduction was in the range of $700,000 or something like that. And the fine was millions. You don't get quite the benefit out of it that I think companies would hope for, but it is an additional incentive now and an effort by the department to do something they've been trying for years, which is to partner with companies in a sense on sort of their efforts to bring repercussions to individuals who are involved in misconduct. Obviously, one of the things the department likes to do where possible, where the evidence exists, is to charge those individuals 
with crimes, but for other individuals where perhaps there wasn't criminal conduct, but perhaps bad actions, this allows some form of a punishment for those individuals. I have to say, I'm in the camp of believing that this effort is wholly misguided. I can't pretend otherwise. I think if the DOJ or the SEC for that matter, because this goes all the way back to Sarbanes-Oxley when at the last minute they threw clawback provisions into that law. And in 2002, I remember calling the SEC because I was in the middle of an investigation of financial fraud saying, guys, is this my problem? Your problem? How does this even work? And no one knew. But be that as it may, 20 years later, I think it's no more well thought out. If the DOJ, SEC, or some other government wants to impose clawbacks, it should make sure that the law is clear enough and it should do it itself. The problem with doing this is, at what point is a company meant to chase a million dollars or $2 million by commencing litigation because maybe it'll get sued as it tries to do this, which may cost $5 million, which may corrupt its DNO policy for the next 20 years. A company has an obligation under standard fiduciary duties to exercise its business judgment, which includes taking into account financial repercussions of cost and benefit. By putting the company in a position where you're basically saying dollar for dollar, we'll give you a dollar off if you chase this, it's trying to corrupt the business judgment decision-making that boards are charged with every day. It also opens the floodgates for private plaintiffs to sue boards for not doing this. DOJ never worries about the realities of shareholder derivative or class action litigation, which are out there. But you can imagine a company that exercises its business judgment, does not go after a CEO or a group of executives because it believes it's not in the company's overall best interest for any number of reasons to do it. And then a private plaintiff comes on the back end of that and says, hey, you should have gone after the CEO for 50 million, 100 million, 200 million. You should have gone after everyone. And so now we're going to commence a derivative action against the board of directors for failing to do that. And so the knock-on consequences of this are just, to me, catastrophic. And I think it's misguided. I think that based on that, based on those difficulties, as well as just difficulties internationally for companies to do this, it's illegal in a lot of countries and impossible in a number of other ones. So companies obviously are struggling with it significantly. And I think that in the end, the clawback aspect of this is not going to be that used by companies. And in reality, even before this policy was issued, when you were before the department, you would always explain if you terminated someone, whether you allowed them to get their bonuses, if so, why? And I've gone in and had to explain to the department, look, we fired this person, but the form of the firing, if you see the paperwork, it is actually a voluntary resignation because if not a voluntary resignation, we could get sued and it's going to cost us even more money. And by and large, the prosecutors understand the issues that companies face from labor laws in other countries, but the policy is out there. And so I do think there's a lot of people who are commenting very similar thoughts to Kevin, and it is concerning to a number of companies that this is out there, that they're afraid that this is an expectation, even though it's phrased as sort of a voluntary thing that you can get benefits from. A lot of companies are reading it as an expectation. And I think that that is a bit damaging both to the department's efforts, as well as discussions in the boardroom and within the company, like Kevin said. And if you look at the notion of forward-looking remediation, 
The idea is you've discovered wrongdoing at some level, and the company's obligation is figure out the root cause, why did it happen, and make sure it can happen again to the benefit of the company and its stockholders. And that includes you know, repairing policies and procedures. But as regards personnel, if people can't be retrained because it wasn't an oops, then you have an obligation to take people out from the responsibilities where they could cause that same harm again. To me, that's a full remedial effort. And this idea of chasing the money for all the reasons I've expressed and a bunch of others is just misguided. I'd like to turn now to enforcement actions. And I'll start with you, Laura. I think we saw a little bit of an uptick in enforcement actions. But the thing that struck me was how either instructive they were for the compliance community or maybe the lessons learned that were spelled out in both DPAs, NPAs, and even in declinations. Ask if there were one or two that really stood out to you for either of those reasons, enjoyed them, they were favorites or others. I'll go to one that was actually a guilty plea, which is the breach of the DPA with Erickson this year from their sort of non-disclosure of all relevant conduct to the department during the course of their discussions and their DPA time period, that a breach of a DPA, which we have seen before from the department, we saw another example of that this year in the Erickson resolution. So I think that's one that people should take note of. And when engaging in an investigation and a self-report, ensuring that all of the relevant information is shared is one, investigated in the first instance so that you have the information. And then if you are going to self-report, that you make sure your reporting is fulsome so that you don't end up in a situation like Erickson found itself in. Another one I found interesting was ABB, which we touched on a bit earlier. But for those who aren't as familiar with it, ABB was able to get a deferred prosecution agreement, even though it was a twice recidivist and had two previous resolutions with the Department of Justice. And this year, although its two subsidiaries pled guilty, ABB, the parrot company, was able to get a deferred prosecution agreement despite the recidivist status and all of the recidivist language in both DOJ policies, as well as a lot of the pronouncements. And I think that the ABB resolution and some of the compliance measures that are discussed in the relevant considerations aspect of the DPA are very informative and can be very useful to compliance executives to understand, to point to when talking to other executives or their board to say these are measures that are expected. These are measures that are accounted for and credited by the Department of Justice. So I think Erickson and ABB are the two I would highlight for this year. I'd like to turn now to outside of the United States because, as you correctly noted, Capital Alert is much broader than FCPA enforcement inside the United States, or at least with U.S. domiciled companies. And you've got an extensive chapter on France, I think, really highlighting the evolution of French bribery and corruption enforcement and the French compliance community. HHR is a huge part of, but also Brazil and China still more looking at. So I was wondering if we might, as we move towards the end of this podcast, maybe highlight outside the United States and the breadth and scope of anti-bribery, anti-corruption enforcement literally outside the U.S. Sure. I'll take a 30-second chop and leave Laura the balance. But 
I think when you look at those three, there are three good ones to point out, Tom. You know, France is now a player on the world stage with a full seat at the big boys table or big girls table. They have DPAs, they have robust enforcement, they have fairly regular pronouncements about what the expectations are, and they have a bar here in Paris and elsewhere in France that's listening. And people are starting to evolve their practices in a very substantial way. And I've been around these parts for some time. And so things, they are a change in very substantially. Brazil sort of has had its moments where it looked like it was moving in the right direction. And then one step forward, two steps back, potentially. I think they're well-intended, but they have challenges with their political environment. And China, I think, notwithstanding whatever it says, it's hard to get around the feeling that everything that happens is driven by its own internal politics with a much greater emphasis on ferreting out their own misconduct by people who have fallen out of favor or soon will than it is really being robust players as part of the world community in these things. It's, to me, much more selective, although where you end up on the wrong side of it, you will feel its pinch. Yeah, I mean, our alert does cover other countries. Before my time, I understand, it was focused only on the U.S., which made sense at that time because the U.S. was sort of the only game in town when it came to foreign anti-corruption enforcement. And other players have now come to the table. And so we've added on different sections to our alert in order to address the growing enforcement efforts in other countries to help people understand what those efforts look like, what the statutes are, and any advancements they've made. As Kevin notes, there are some countries, they ramp up, then they ramp down, unfortunately, based on political will that encounters. So for example, last year we had a section on Mexico in our alert. We try to focus on changes and developments, and there weren't any in Mexico this year, other than sort of a lack of enforcement, frankly, particularly for foreign bribery. And so this year we don't have a section on that. But the international development of enforcement efforts is constantly evolving. I think it's something you can see in the U.S. resolutions as well, in the DPAs, in the NPAs, in the plea agreements, the press releases that are attendant to all of those. Thank particular countries. They note sort of the parallel resolutions that are happening with a number of countries. I think this year... If not the first, it's one of the first resolutions that included South Africa as well. And so there's just a growing number of countries that are entering this sphere. For companies, that means they need to pay attention to not just the U.S., but other countries as well and sort of what that might look like. And we touched on it earlier. Sometimes it's just a concern of if I report in the U.S., what will that mean elsewhere? I think a number of companies are not for certain countries particularly concerned that that country might take the first step, but that is a growing change in development. And people are starting to think, even if it doesn't touch on the U.S., I might still end up with an investigation. Well, guys, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I, on behalf of the compliance community, am going to thank you, your entire team at Hughes, Hubbard & Reed. The alert is one of the most welcome documents annually. You guys put out the first one. So garners a lot of attention, but I, for one, use it literally throughout the year. Thanks again, and I look forward to continuing this conversation. Great. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, Tom.